0: Hi, I'm Zimmer Bose. Welcome to the Net Hero Podcast. Been a bit of a break, but back. And back with a really important piece today, looking at whether climate change is new or not so new, uh, but more about that a little later. It's been an interesting for a few weeks, and if you read my blog the other day that I put out, um, I was in Italy and one thing that struck me was one we had a little power cut well i don't know if it's a power cut or something went wrong but we lost water for about 14 hours and you suddenly realize that when you lose a vital service what it means and it's not the drinking water because yeah we could go and get the drinking water from the shops and that was fine but it's all the water that you use for ancillary things like brushing your teeth flushing the loo washing vegetables cooking and you realize just how precarious things are obviously the world knows what's going on right now in ukraine and one of the major issues they've got is making sure the fundamentals of the grid keep going so that people can get electricity can pump water and survive but it also made me realize that um in the place that i was in southern italy an area called puglia they're already in water distress and water will be the next big thing for us to look at we're all busy wondering about how we make sure we clean up the air but What we're not looking at is the integrity of the whole biosphere and water is a vital part of it. So it's something I think we want to explore. On the Ukraine front, you may have also seen, you'll see it on the uh, pages of Future Net Zero and Energy Live News, that the EU is talking about a ban on Russian oil imports altogether. I think, personally, that hasn't come uh, soon enough and uh, they're looking at doing that at the end of the year. But obviously, as you know, Everything in bureaucracy takes decades, so it's planned to be done by the end of this year, but I won't hold my breath. And talking about the politics of all of this, Tony Blair has piped up, and again, it's a story you can read on our platforms, looking back at what happened, and he's basically said that uh, the situation in Ukraine really proves how Western European powers didn't kick their eye on the ball when it came to energy security because uh, Ukraine was invaded in 2014. We all seem to ignore that Crimea was annexed then. And Blair wrote a very interesting piece where he basically said that that really should have been the trigger for improving energy security and creating more energy independence away from Russian oil and gas. And that has continued to happen. So this week we've had Boris promising as he does with his bluster Let's build a nuclear power station every year. I, again, I hold my breath on that, but it is vital that we do start to use our own energy resources. And that means building nuclear. And I know a lot of people disagree with me on that, but that's my fundamental view. We need that nuclear baseload, and we need to make sure that we're building more offshore and onshore wind at the same time. The net zero argument, many say with what's going on with the prices spiking, is getting weaker. I say it's the other way around. I think it's getting stronger because if you don't build your own energy security right now, how are you going to prevent the things that are happening in terms of geopolitics? Yeah, The reliance on awful regimes for oil and gas. So this is something that I think brings more gusto to the net zero rather than less. So that's about it, there's plenty of other stories you can check out on uh, futurenetzero.com and Energy Live News because there's been a lot of news happening and some great stuff around The Big Zero Show, which I'll mention at the end. But on to this week's podcast, and it was a a really interesting chat with uh, one of the researchers at the Hadley Centre, which is a climate science research centre run by the Met Office, and funnily enough, Decades ago, uh, I did a documentary for the BBC looking at climate change way back in 98, and I visited the Hadley Centre. And this place has been looking for about 100 years at records of uh, rainfall, weather patterns, and some very interesting work has been done looking through the archives. So these are archives they already had, but archives that were paper, and they've digitised them to find out that actually, If you look at the records and you go back, we've had droughts, we've had major storms in this country, we've had all the things that we think are significant uh, indicators of climate change, but they happened 150 years ago. So have a listen to this. So we're all obsessed with climate change for good reason, but is it new? Is it something that's actually been going on for a lot longer than we think? Well, new data looking back in time, says that that might be the case. A study's been done by the Met Office and the University of Reading, looking at kind of rainfall during the Victorian era, going back to, I think, 1855. So it's looked at 130 years of what's going on, and it's found some very interesting things, including that extreme weather, may not be as new as we think. To talk us through this and joining me on the podcast this week is Dr. Mark McCarthy, who's a man member science manager of the National Climate Information Centre, uh, which looks at kind of analysis of UK climate. Uh, Mark, thanks for joining us. Hello. Just before we start, uh, people have heard of the Met Office, but what exactly is the Hadley Centre in the Met Office, which is quite a sort of major part of all our climate science isn't
1: it? Yeah so for its full title it's the Met Office Hadley Centre for Climate Science and Services. So the Hadley Centre's aim uh, it's it's part of the Met Office but it's to provide climate science to uh, UK government, to people, to organisations basically to help them make better decisions around climate change and the potential impact of climate change to themselves and also provide that sort of policy relevant science to government to support their involvement in the um, global and the international response to climate change
0: so in terms of kind of you know when we as businesses or members of the public when we see legislation it's based on data and particularly data on climate a lot of that comes from, from Hadley, does it? Uh,
1: yeah, so our research really covers a, n- a number of aspects. So monitoring our changes to climate. So we have observational data in some cases, as we'll come to, spanning centuries, um, uh, looking at determining the causes of observed variability and changes in our climate. And therefore, what that means for the risks that we're exposed to as a society, to both to weather and climate, and, and then helping work with uh, users to sort of develop effective approaches to, to how they might manage that that risk. So it, it's very much a uh, research focused organization, but collaborates. Yeah. we collaborate very closely, uh, both within the UK and internationally on what is very much a global challenge. Before we talk about
0: this specific um, study I mean I we were
1: talking before, before we started recording that I,
0: I when I worked at the BBC I actually went to the Hadley Center many many moons ago um, in in the late 90s doing a story about climate change at the in the early days of all the stuff, El Nino and things like that. W- what's the difference between climate and weather because that's the thing I think a lot of us struggle with because you know you get massive sunny, Periods I mean, oh my god, the climate's oh, it's all changing, and then you get rain, it's oh my god, it's but is that weather? What, what's the difference? How would you scientifically tell us for lay people to understand weather and climate?
1: Yeah, uh, well, there, there are a number of analogies actually, and uh, one of those is sort of so weather is you know what we're experiencing day to day and it's about time scales uh, and climate is about what is the collective weathers that we experience in a in a particular place so sometimes that's described as you know the sort of the, the average of the conditions in a particular area and uh, uh, or that sort of thing but one analogy is sort of weather is like what you're wearing today and climate is like your wardrobe
0: <laughs> right well my wardrobe is well out of date so- <laughs> <laughs> and and in terms of climate can we be sort of specific in in the stuff because obviously I, I you know I'm, I'm old enough to remember the TV weather where they used to stick the little magnets on the board and then they'd say oh yeah, we've got some cloud coming in it's now brilliant you know the apps much more accurate can tell you within kind of you know half an hour to 15 minutes even of when rain's due all of the data that we get to give us our sort of weather now Is that really coming because we've got better science, better satellites, that sort of stuff?
1: Yes. I mean, it it has been an endeavour spanning decades and centuries to, to develop and improve the science that underpins both weather prediction, but also um, climate science. So climate science is also not, uh, some would think of as a relatively new discipline. It's not actually. uh, The sort of foundations of climate science really go back to the um, early 19th century, the early 1800s as well. And there has been very rapid development in both our capabilities for weather and climate in the last few decades because of the emergence of of digital science, the capabilities of supercomputing, uh, and the observational capabilities. So the fact that we have uh, a much richer sources of observations than we've ever had in the past. So observing the earth from space, the satellite observations, but also being able to mount equipment on everything from aircraft uh, to ships across the the oceans to exploring how uh, individuals uh, um, can contribute their data through back garden thermometers and that sort of thing. So,
0: in terms of where we are into uh, before before we look deeper into kind of where we were in a way, um, one of the things that's always struck me is that um, you know whenever you do stories about weather and particularly with climate, it's a very kind of emotive thing. You know, they always say the only thing that you can if you if you're a foreigner you suddenly arrive in Britain, the first thing to talk to you is about the weather. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, you said that it's gone back a, a long time. Why do you think we're all so obsessed? Is it because we're, we're an island? <laughs>
1: I mean, yes, I mean, that that could have something to do with it. Yeah, we are an island nation. uh, And also because of our geography and where we're located, we're sort of, the UK sits under what you might describe a battleground of weather systems and weather types, Because we're we're sort of nestled between the Atlantic Ocean to our west, and we've got the continent, the Eurasian continent to uh, our east, the Arctic in the north and and the tropics below. So uh, the weather and the variability That we experience in our weather is a sort of consequence of that that sort of the battleground and the vagaries of which of those components uh, are dominating on any particular day or or week. And so I I guess that that sort of variability in our weather has meant that that we're always susceptible to those vagaries and therefore we've always had that sort of strong interest in, in, in being able to understand that uh, and particularly to be able to predict it and to forecast it and so the development of weather forecasting is is a science the Met Office was founded in the 1850s primarily the purpose was to save lives at sea and to provide maritime forecasting yeah yeah. uh, and developing that since and realizing that all aspects of our society and sector have some uh, sensitivity and some vulnerability to weather. So uh, the more forewarning and the, the the better capabilities we have for preparing people for, for those situations, the better.
0: So let's look at your study. So in essence, you, you look back and you talked about just then about when the Met Office was formed and, and, and due to kind of, you know, the needs for you know a seafaring nation to know what was going to happen. How did people start noting weather you talked there about what we've got now satellites and all these things but I suppose in the old days if we go back to the 1850s which is where you were looking what did they do did they ca- catch it in beakers did they have people sitting you know I've seen movies where people are sort of standing on top of cliffs and waiting <laughs> I don't know if that's true if they did all that but how how did they yeah. record this data that you've looked at
1: yeah, uh, well, actually, I'll, I'll go a bit a bit further back first. In that, that sort of, as we just discussed, you know, we've long had that fascination of weather, and some of our earliest records of what the weather conditions were like come from, you know, diaries and and people recording the information, and uh, right. uh, some people would record that quite systematically, um, and and others would just.
0: Um, yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but particularly noteworthy when there were weather extremes, you know, um, particularly damaging storms or floods. Uh, uh, we'll have sort of documentary evidence of, of those extremes in the far past. Instrumental measurements to, for what we would recognise uh, today still uh, came in in the sort of in the Enlightenment era. So the 17th century, uh, the foundation of the Royal Society and the, those sort of gentlemen scientists uh, of that time, the, the 1650s, uh, uh, and around that time, Newton, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and there were a number of scientists in that era who were particularly, they, they started to recognize actually there could be some value to make systematic measurements of weather parameters. Uh, and in that period, we see the invention of the thermoscope, the early thermometers uh, and barometers for measuring atmospheric pressure. Uh, And they sort of started developing these instruments and uh, then taking measurements and reporting their measurements to things like the Royal Society and sharing them to see whether you they could start spotting patterns and so on, Uh, and recognizing that actually if you could somehow bring all of this information together from across the country, uh, that would be really valuable. Uh, But then we fast forward a couple of hundred years to to the uh, 19th century, um, and really the value of that started to kick off. That required some other technology, which was the telegraph networks and being able to communicate this information quickly enough. Um, So in the 19th century uh, there were all sorts of people measuring um, weather uh, and particularly rainfall because uh, rainfall is an amount of water, Uh, Mm. so in a very simple sense you need an instrument that can collect that water as it falls from the sky and and some way to to measure the amount. Um, So people were collecting that for for all sorts of different reasons. And and, um, as part of this study that we've done with the rainfall rescue project, which has rescued uh, these rainfall observations from the the Victorian period, actually some slightly earlier as well, it also gives a little window into some of the people that were taking those measurements and why. Uh, So for example, Cumbria had uh, a really Really, quite a good network of um, rainfall observations back in the sort of mid nineteenth century, so eighteen thirties, eighteen forties onwards, and that sort of bubbled up from the mining interests and the industrial interests there there um, at the time. So you had all sorts, uh, and we find you know looking in those records, there's lots of clergy do it as well as sort of part of their, I guess, part of their, their sort of community function at the time. So it's quite interesting, sort of seeing the different reasons people were for a number of reasons, different groups, communities, sectors of society were recognizing there was value in collecting some of this information and, and recording it. Um, you also see some sort of, they're, they're popping up along the developing rail networks as well. Uh, so they was sort of measuring yeah. the, the <laughs> rainfall uh, along those. So you can sort of see why many people even back then were, were recording this information. And thankfully, you know, uh, were uh, noting it down, writing it down and sharing it so that uh, that information um, has survived the test of time so it was never lost uh, and our recovery project was taking this collection that existed in the Met Office archives uh, but they were on paper form so this project and the activity was about bringing that information out of the archives uh, and back into a digital age and making it a value to 21st century science.
0: When you talk about the people and um, before we talk about the findings I mean, you said a little bit about that. These weren't scientists, really, were they? They were just, you know, like you said, vicars. It's very different to what we see now because I'm not the sort of person who'd go and see and stick a beaker and go, "How much? How many millimeters?" Right? I'd leave it up to people like year to do that. But it was very different in those days because, as you said, science was a thing that a lot of just ordinary members of the public
1: took part in. Yeah. Well, it was a very different era, so uh, um, science wasn't a professionalized quite in the same way that it is today. Uh, um, And so the the sort of the term scientist, which is, is generally attached to professionals these days. So there were a lot of people who were doing it for personal reasons or their own interests. But In actual fact, that that does still continue today. So there are very active uh, and very enthusiastic and committed amateur networks uh, for meteorology. So lots of people have back garden weather stations uh, that they uh, very committedly take Their observations from, um, and are still sharing them as well using sort of technologies. So uh, the Met Office hosts a a weather observation website where um, people can submit their own their own weather observations, uh, and that that's a very active uh, with a very active community involved. And there are others out there as well. So weather is still something. (laughs) No, no, they they absolutely have not, and uh, uh, and because i guess uh, and being a meteorologist uh, myself you know it it's it's a it's a science that that has developed over uh, over several centuries um but it's very tangible you know you can interact you can step outside yes. your yes. your back door and you can even if you don't have a garden you you know you can interact with it you can see it playing yes. out so um it is accessible uh, uh to some degree
0: so looking at the stuff that you actually found you know the the records Um, you know most people would think that climate change is a modern thing you know we we have the extremes of it's really hot or it's really dry or there's so much rain now and it's all to do with climate change but that's not necessarily what what you
1: found you found records that sort of show this variability way back when. Uh, Yeah that's absolutely right so an important aspect uh, and the motivation for this type of work is is in order to be able to quantify and understand the risks of of climate today and in the future, we we also need that context of the past. Uh, And for the UK, because as we discussed previously, we have a very variable climate, uh, we need as long historical records as we can to to really sort of pick out some of these these extremes. But we can separate this into sort of two components of that aspect. So there's what we would uh, generally refer to as climate variability, uh, so, this is the, the variations in climate primarily from natural causes and the vagaries of uh, the Atlantic Ocean and the Arctic and how they're influencing our weather and climate in any particular period of time. And some of those changes can be quite slow as well and sort of uh, over years or or decades. And then we have this sort of climate change, which is usually used to refer to the human induced changes in our our climate that we're seeing as a consequence of greenhouse gas emissions uh, that that we have been making since the the industrial revolution, but but, uh, uh, much more so in more recent decades. the the 20th and 21st century. And so to be able to put the impacts of climate change from a human induced climate change, we, we sort of need that understanding of the variability as well. And so, for example, we are picking up this extension of our our rainfall records with these Victorian data. It's certainly picking up some really interesting extremes and throwing more light on those. Uh, So the driest year on record for the UK in our new data set is now 1855, for example. Um, We picked up some uh, extremes in the 1840s as well. But the the difference between the two is, is the climate change and uh, how we think about climate change, uh, one of the impacts will be is, are, are the extremes. Um, but climate change isn't just about the record breakers uh, always. It's also about how we're, how we're loading the dice. Uh, for for an an analogy so although extremes have happened in the past uh, and uh, even looking way back in the past we can see you know some exceptionally wet periods some exceptionally dry periods Um, and what we when we compare to the present day so Let's take, for example, uh, November, December, uh, early winter of 1852 was a period of exceptionally wet months back then. And in the general context of the the sort of hundred years around, that really exceptional period. But... When we look at the modern period, we're sort of seeing that it's more often, it's more frequent that we can see rainfall amounts close to or, or, or even above uh, what was observed in those extremes. So oh, okay. uh, it's, it's that case of we can see extremes in the past, but are they happening more often? Uh, and what does that mean for the sort of level of flood defences that we, we might need to, to make sure that we are protecting our communities from um, these sorts of extreme events? So, so it, it is about the extremes, but it's also about that that sort of the frequency, the likelihood of them occurring, and how that's changing over time. So, similarly, you know, heat waves, heat waves have occurred in the past, uh, and some really notable ones in the documentary evidence. Uh, but we know because of our warming climate over the last fifty or sixty years, they're becoming much more frequent. Uh, so it's also it it's about the records, and it's also about their frequency.
0: So, so what you're trying to say, this doesn't sort of negate climate change by saying hey it's been dry and it's been wetter what you're saying is the frequency of these uh, abnormal events is increasing now that there's no doubt about yeah. that in the yeah. modern times
1: yes that, that that's right yeah uh, and particularly well for for rainfall we're particularly seeing a lot more of these wet extremes in our climate of the the sort of last few second uh, the last few decades uh, and in now what is now a very long uh, rainfall series from 1836 to present day uh, uh, many of the sort of wettest years on record are in the last two decades
0: what did you think when you pulled this together and what, what did your colleagues think when you, you know, you found this stuff, as you said, it was already in the archives, but you've actually looked at it, analysed it, and put it in.
1: Uh, what was your take? I guess there are, there are several takes. I mean, we we were blown away by the project and the ability to get these data digitised and, and to make them available. I mean, they're, the, the project started two years ago, but we've still, the data themselves are as valuable now as when the measurement was made sort of 150 or more years ago that in itself I find personally quite you know it's it's amazing it's sort of I'd like to think back these these people who are making these measurements I wonder if they had any perception that, that, yeah. that, that the work they were doing would be so valuable to 21st century scientists and will continue to be so for future generations of climate scientists for for understanding. So, so there's that element of it uh, and, and sort of having that connection um, to our past weather which is you know, for, for a meteorologist it, it is really quite, quite remarkable. But I think with all of this work as well it's always sobering. Uh, to then even when we are doing this, uh, as you just said, none of this work is overturning our fundamental understanding of climate change as it's happening today and the fact that that is a major uh, global challenge for us to to try to address. So this new research is providing really valuable insights uh, and um, the data can feed into further research to, to, to understand our vulnerabilities and the risks associated with these sorts of extreme uh, events and particularly hydrological extremes, but it's still supporting our understanding uh, and the scientific understanding of climate change of the last sort of 50 to 100 years.
0: Would you say before we sort of end up that um, it sounds like it's, it's it's fascinating data, but what use is it for us now? What use is it for the businesses, the politicians, all the people you mentioned right at the beginning? What will this add? Is it just giving you a better spectrum of data to work from so hopefully your predictions are better in the future or, or or what is it
1: yes it is partly that it gives us a better historical context for communicating how extreme events contemporary extreme events that we experience now fit into that his, historical picture so we're placing you know the, the weather of today into the context of a very long historical series and then also that uh, Uh, government and industry can understand what risks they might be exposed to in the future, so we can improve the way that that understanding of our our risks and vulnerability uh, to climate variability and climate change are both now and for the future. So that's a key part of it. And I think with this expansive data, it is at its heart observational data. These these are real measurements we've got. So this is a really valuable resource for us to be able to understand how climate varies and changes in the UK, and also make sure that our physical understanding of those processes and how we programme that into climate models and the numerical simulations are effective. uh, And they are also um, representing the type of variability that that we we have seen from the observational records.
0: Well, that's, you know, been fascinating. I just want to end with a question, which is really about the future. So this is all fine and this is great and it's brilliant that it's saying that and I suppose it will really help you work out, you know, kind of industrial revolution. Can we see what effects it had? But when you come to the predictions of the future, which obviously none of us know, what can you tell us about how accurate we think we are in terms of our, our work? Because... That's the real thing. Policy is being built on this. Businesses are changing the way they work. People are changing the way they live and eat. All based on sort of science, particularly this climate science. That you know, you you guys and colleagues like you around the world, how confident should we be about where we are? Because there are always going to be doubters. There are going to be people who say that, that you know that this is just natural variability. Yeah. What, what would you say to that about kind of the robustness of of these predictions that we make today?
1: The core narrative and our, our sort of core statements about climate change, its causes and the future trajectory are very robust and they have stood the test of time. So the role of human emitted greenhouse gases uh, on global temperature and climate change is something we have known about since the early 20th century, so post Second World War. Uh, and develop that science since then Uh, and that's very robust Uh, and the where obviously any good science is also founded on exactly the levels of confidence that we place around things so one of the key aspects of that for the future is what trajectory our future emissions are going to take Uh, and so that's a a very core point for for how we approach that. So for future projections we use uh, a range of scenarios of future emissions uh, to explore the possible future worlds we might experience depending upon uh, what sort of socio-economic futures we undertake. Um, And so the, the science that we develop is is actually very heavily bounded in those statements of confidence and uncertainty in in what the future means. And so the work for interpreting that information, it's a conversation, it is a two-way process in order to be able to interpret what that means for how a particular sector or a particular whether it's a, a company or, or government, um, would respond to, to those particular risks. So the science itself is very sound, is very robust. Uh, and part of that robust science is also communicating uh, that confidence level that we have around those particular statements.
0: Mark, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Looking at where we are now, You know, we can be very doom and gloom. Before we go, are you optimistic that we can make the changes? Now, has this kind of, you know, look back in the past, hopefully inspired your, your view of the future?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, in terms of the optimism, you know, what what we decide uh, now uh, and we have the opportunity to uh, uh, make decisions to affect the uh, to reduce the risks um, from future climate change. So we can still affect change. And that is uh, absolutely still still possible and so the work we do whether it's building clearer picture of the historical climate and historical climate changes to the development of our, our computer modelling that work is all to support society and that decision making process to to help inform how we make those decisions uh, both now and in the future. Mark it's been
0: absolutely fascinating thank you so much for joining us on the Hero podcast this week. Okay it's been great to be here. Uh, Mark McCarthy there from the Hadley Centre at the Met Office. And uh, that research is out there. You can have a look at the Met Office website and I'm sure you'll be able to follow that programme. But it's really interesting, you know, in conclusion, climate change happened, but it's happening faster. And that's where uh, these weather incidents are happening with increased frequency. Uh, Before I go, we are now just over a month and a bit away from the Big Zero show. And pretty much most of the content is up there. So if you have a look at bigzeroshow.com, you'll see what's going on. We're down to the last, I think, 20 tickets. So get yourself registered. If you haven't done so, it's free. And if you'd like to sponsor then do get in touch. Uh, We've got plenty more coming up over the next few weeks. We'll hopefully be talking to a team in India. In fact, not a team, a husband and wife couple who just decided that the beach was so filthy, they'd do something about it. And after two years, they cleaned about 11,000 tons of rubbish on the beach. So that's an interesting story. And we'll be bringing you our feature, long awaited feature, very soon on Claire Patterson. Click subscribing to the podcast. Thank you very much for supporting it. See you next week. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things net zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com Better business, better planet.